verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, welcome to, uh, are we good to go? Welcome to uh, Multiplier. Let me just get uh, sorted and open my Bible. Uh, I wrote something down uh, last year, uh, just as Scott asked me to preach this year, and I wrote down how I was feeling, how I feel every year at Multiplier. I feel like a, a fake amongst people who are really doing it. I feel, I feel often at these conferences, I feel like I'm a, I'm, a bit of a, I'm a bit of a sham, that there are a bunch of other people who are really the ones who are hard at work, and for many reasons, I don't know what it is, but I feel alone at this conference. Uh, I feel, and I see the great churches around me, and I feel jealous that I'm not uh, as bold and a great leader as Daniel Godden and things like that. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's you today, and you've come along to this conference, you're in good company, come and chat to me. I actually, I don't like conferences, I prefer to kind of sit by myself. I struggle in big crowds to meet people. And so if that's you, it's good that you're here, and I want to encourage you to get the most out of this. second thing I wanted to say is it is a real privilege to speak, and it's a little bit intimidating because a bunch of my Australian heroes are in the room. I remember hearing uh, David Jones preach at Easter Convention many years ago, and I felt like the glory of God was in the room as I heard him (laughs) preach. Uh, There's Al Stewart. I think maybe I became a Christian, possibly, at one of the men's conventions or Katoomba Youth Conventions that he spoke at a number of years ago, and he was my coach in the first couple of years of church planning. There's Andrew Hurd which uh, the church I was a part of in Gladesville, which I grew up in, we, uh, Andrew was a part of that church. We sent him out to plant EV Church. And ever since I was a teenager, I've been watching. I used to go for 10 or 12 years. I'd go up there and do a summer beach mission with them, just watching this church grow through the preaching of the gospel and thinking, wow. And then there's uh, Phil Wheeler, who put up with me when I was on MTS, and Andrew Mitchell as well. And so in this room, I feel very intimidated, uh, but it's a great privilege to be here. Liz, uh, Liz alluded to it, but last year was, uh, was definitely our hardest year uh, in our planting journey. I won't, we won't go into the details about it, but in many ways, uh, we experienced conflict in our church, which made us feel very alone. We experienced constant criticism over and over and over again. And most of the time, the criticism was about how we're not meeting the needs of the people in our church. And Liz would hear this criticism 
And she would just look at me, and I was out every night of the week. I wouldn't get a single night in the week at home to ourselves. And she was just like, you know, what more do you want? And it, at that moment, you know, our, our love for our people in our church was in danger of growing very, very cold. Uh, we, we, we started thinking that the risk of loving people, it just wasn't worth the risk. It was just too difficult. There were moments when we thought of giving up, walking away, finding an easier place. Liz repeatedly <laughs> actually said, let's go back to accounting. That's a much safer uh, prospect. Can we please do that? And she's still saying that to me. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, we've really struggled to keep loving people as they haven't loved us. And there have been times in the last year where we're just like, you know, why do we keep loving people? Who's, who's there to love us? I mean, no one's looking out for us. I'm out every night of the week trying to keep a church together through this period of conflict. You know, there's no one looking after us. How do we keep loving people? And we were very close. Uh, she was very, very close to walking away. I don't think I was that close. But we were, we were close to giving up and our love was close to flickering out. And that's what this letter uh, to the Ephesian church is all about. As you know, over the next couple of days, uh, I'm going to be spending our time just on the first three churches. In, Jesus writes this letter to these three, uh, seven churches in Revelation. And as you know, Revelation is the book, the Apostle John, uh, he receives this revelation while on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus appears to him. John was a powerful leader in the early church. He was the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's, he was the guy, the lead pastor in this church. Timothy was his, one of the teaching pastors in his church. The Apostle Paul regularly writing to him. Uh, informing this church how to organize themselves. And as he was preaching and teaching, he saw over the course of many decades, he saw over the course of many decades, all the other apostles die brutal, bloody, martyrs' deaths. Apparently, they even tried to kill John uh, repeatedly. He would not die. Uh, apparently, Tertullian writes that on one occasion, they tried to boil him in a vat of oil, and he didn't die. Many people turned to Christ after that miracle. And so they exile him. They think, well, we can't kill him, so what are we going to do? Well, let's put him on an island in the middle of nowhere. Surely that will bury this man's influence. Little do they know that uh, he was about to receive a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be the most powerful book in the New Testament which would strengthen the church to endure what was about to come towards them. Amazing, isn't it? But imagine you're John. Your skin is just ruined from being boiled in oil. You're there alone, away from your church. All the other apostles are dead. You're the only one that's left. You're exiled. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one meeting your needs. There's no one looking out for you. It looks completely hopeless. And then the Lord Jesus Christ appears to you and gives you this revelation. And you might be in a, and I say that because you might be in a similar place today. 
Uh, church planning, I think, is a very lonely job, and you can feel dejected. And, and I think in this room there is just a heap, there's a, there's a, there's a, a mountain of disappointment in this room right now. And this book reminds us that though Satan rages and though God's people will suffer and though the future looks hopeless, the Lamb has won a great victory and he is seated on the throne and that his kingdom will come despite what the powers and principalities of this world will do, despite what the dragon and the beast will do, despite what the power of Rome and the seduction of Babylon will do, the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended and ruling. And that should give us confidence this day, whatever is happening in your church at this moment. And at the beginning of this book, Jesus sends seven letters. Jesus, he gives this revelation to John that they might lift their eyes and see reality for what it really is. And I think, you know, the title of this conference is really apt, The Invisible War, because most of our disappointments arise because we're blind to what's really happened. If we really realized that there was an invisible war going on, our expectations would be different and we would face the difficulties in a way in which we are prepared. And at the start of this book, Jesus sends a letter to the churches encouraging them and challenging them to stay true to him, to stand firm. And that's what we're going to look at over the next three talks. If Jesus were to write a letter to you and to your church, what would he say? You don't have to guess. Because what he wrote then is the letter to your church this very day. The Spirit is still speaking. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying right now. Jesus Christ, he spoke these words thousands of years ago, but the Spirit is speaking this to you this very moment. This letter is written to you yourself, and so pay attention to it. The first letter Jesus writes is to this church in Ephesus. And just a little bit of background. They are the wealthiest and greatest city in the province of Asia. Lots of travelers Merchandise flowed into it, prosperous business center. It boasted of the magnificent temple in honor of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. Splendid location, set on this majestic harbor. It was a self-governed city. And today, if you travel to Ephesus, it is nothing but ruins. The once crowded harbor is now a marsh of dense reeds. And the busy streets are now a waste and desolation. And in each letter that Jesus writes, this is the letter to Ephesus, but in each letter, there's there's a common structure, isn't there? First, Jesus, he introduces himself, and his introduction of himself relates very practically to the church and the situation they're in. And then usually he commends something uh, about their church he, uh, he criticizes something in their church and finally he commands them to do something because ultimately he is the lead pastor, the head of the church, and we must listen to him. So let's look at those three things. Let's look at where this church is succeeding, uh, where they're failing, and finally let's look at what he commands them. What he commends them, uh, what he critiques them on, and what he 
uh, commands them to do. Come and look at verse 1 with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Just as the priest would go in the temple and trim the seven-branched lamp of gold in the Old Testament, see how our great high priest walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are his churches. He cares daily for the church. He isn't a casual observer. The church is very, very precious to him, more precious than it is to you. It cost him his life to light the candle, which is the church. And he attends to the church, replenishing its oil and removing impurities, which would dim the light. Every church to him is more precious than the stars in the sky. He cares little for nations and empires and republics. His heart is set on the church and the lampstands. Where is he? Where is the orbit of his concern in the universe right now? He is walking among the lampstands, which are the church. Of all the places in our world, of all the places in our universe, of all the places in our galaxy, which Jesus is concerned about, it is your pathetic church. (laughs) Isn't that remarkable? That is the orbit of his central concern. That is where he is standing. And he knows what is going on in your church. Verse 2, I know your deeds. Of course he knows because he loves the church. And because he loves the church, he doesn't come with smooth words. He doesn't come with bitter words. But he comes with truthful words to cast out all that is ruining your church and to build it up so that it is a true reflection of his desire for your church. He says, I know your deeds. Others may not appreciate your deeds, but I do, he says. Ephesus, they were the flagship church of the ancient world. They trained pastors, raised funds, and sent out many church planters all over Asia. He says, I know your hard work. And your perseverance. You didn't show a brief enthusiasm for evangelism. You're still at it. You haven't stopped. You didn't give up when it got hard. You kept pushing forward. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 19 verse 10. That's what we're told. From this little church, all the Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And that's our prayer, isn't it? And therefore, we're going to require perseverance and really hard work. And that's the people in our church. They're going to require that. Just last night, I went on a bunch of our uh, church's websites and just listen to the vision of the churches in our room and think about the hard work that's going to be involved and the perseverance that's going to be required in order to achieve these visions. Dan Godden, Salt Church, their prayer is that they would see a flood of disciples across the Illawarra and beyond. A flood sounds like a lot of people, right? There's going to be a lot of work. Lee Murray, established church, started as a dream to see as many people as possible, regardless of background, establish the life they were made for in Jesus Christ. 
That's a lot of people. That's going to require a lot of work. Chris Eakins, Coast DC, there are about 25,000 people in, in Foster, and we want to see the whole region impacted by the gospel. Dan Good, uh, his mission to present Christ to everyone and to present everyone maturing. Everyone sounds like quite a lot of people. <laughs> right? I'm not sure whether you're going to be ever finished, Dan Goody, but, uh, but that is, you know, this is our work. It's going to require a lot of hard work and perseverance. And that's Ephesus. They just kept going until all Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord in their region. Lord Jesus Christ continues, I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. In other words, you're not making compromises. You're not just fitting into what the cultural zeitgeist says is to be accepted. You're standing up. You're saying that's wrong. And that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, you're theologically astute. You're not casual and naive. You test and you're not tolerant of heresy. You drag every teacher into the light in order to expose any darkness in their teaching. He continues, you've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. In other words, you've accepted hostility on account of me. And some of you have, you've, you've accepted hostility on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be social, commercial. Some of you are finding it very difficult to rent premises because you're a church. It may be physical punishment. I'm not sure whether any of us have experienced that for the sake of church planting, but all of this they've experienced, and yet they persevered and they endured in hardship. We would do well to be like them, wouldn't we? Here are a number of marks of a healthy church. Mark Dever should write a book, right? These are the marks of a healthy church, aren't they? What a remarkable church. The people are busy serving each other, patient in affliction, They hold on to the truth despite what culture is saying. They hate what is evil and they hate error. Here is a list that every church should aspire to. Now, before we move on, just notice, would you, for a moment, that though Jesus, and you know what's coming, right? Though Jesus is about to tell this church where they're failing, and what he's about to tell them is, is, is the most serious thing, I think, He starts by telling them where they're succeeding. He doesn't see our faults and forget the things that he can admire and accept. This is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, He isn't blind to the beauty of his church. He sees the beauty even when we don't. Some people have a very critical spirit and never have anything good to say about anything. And I think church planners fit into that category probably most of all. And that's because we see every blemish. Uh, which our church demonstrates. Everything that's preventing our church from being what Christ would have it to be, we see that and we feel it so personally. And as a result, we go to church with a critical spirit. We don't recognize the good things that are there. And here, Jesus Christ, with eyes penetrating like fire, blazing like fire, his eyes are, that he has the ability to praise things. Even in this church, we'd do well to imitate him and go back to our churches after these three days and praise God for the evidence of his work in 10,000 ways. In our, there may be big problems in your church. 
But there are things to praise God for. It's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? And it's also a wonderful encouragement because my guess is you feel un- unappreciated. I feel unappreciated in my church. And you don't go unappreciated. He sees your hard work, your perseverance, the way you're defending the truth, the way you're not compromising with culture. He sees that. He says, I like that about you. And yet, his love for his church is not blind. He doesn't say, those whom I love, I commend. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And so that brings us to point two. He, uh, he corrects their behavior, doesn't he? He doesn't just commend them. He corrects them. And he comes to rebuke them because he loves them. See verse 4? I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. This is a devastating charge. I'm not sure whether it could be worse than this. Their love has grown cold. And the candle is flickering to the point of being blown out. And I must ask myself, is that true of me? Is that true of my church? Has my love for God chilled and has my love for those I serve diminished over the time I've been a pastor? And Jesus warns us, doesn't he, not to develop a loveless orthodoxy that freezes our churches in an apathetic and critical spirit. That's possible, isn't it? That we can be so concerned about defending the truth that those who believe in lies become our enemies. And rather than seeking to win them, we seek to exclude them and judge them and condemn them. You can be active in church, holding to the truth, believing all the right things, and yet underneath, you can be a church like Ephesus with no love and so be destined for hell. Love is the first mark of a healthy and living and alive church. There is no church which isn't marked by love. Come over to uh, the book of Ephesians, would you? Right at the end of the book of Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul says something very interesting. Ephesians 6, verse 23. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That was this church when the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and now their love doesn't seem to be so undying anymore. It's flickering. They work with vigor, but not with love. They endure with patience, but they don't endure with love. They test their teacher's doctrine. They had no love in their hearts. They obeyed Christ's commands, but they're not loving him. And I don't have to tell you how repulsive a church like that is. To have the truth, but to have no love is to be cold, grim, and dead. Without the warmth, of love, truth, it just becomes abrasive and harsh, cruel and mean. But when the sweetness and light of love is added to truth, the church arises as a light on a lampstand. Without love, I think we're like stainless steel. Clean, but just very cold. 
And that's not what we're meant to be, is it? My question to those of you who are considering church planting or those who have planted is why? Why why are you considering this? Why have you planted? My guess is there are many reasons, and I wrote down all the reasons that are... This is meant to be a confessions, right? Here are my reasons. I love preaching. I'll get to preach as much as I want. I like starting things from scratch. I think I can gather a mob. I want to do church differently. I want to be that guy who... Why are you planting? What about because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and that you are jealous for the worship, that, that the worship of the people in your area would go to him? What about you love the people of your particular place and you can't bear watch them go through life ignorant of the glory of Jesus and ignorant of the coming judgment? Love. If you go into church planting with any other motive apart from love, a number of things will happen. Firstly, you will arouse the anger of your Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Your preaching will lack power because there'll be no fire which comes from the love of God. Thirdly, you may persuade your hearers to love Christ and you may warn them of the coming judgment, but you yourself may be an alien to Christ, therefore. And you may find yourself in the place you have a hundred times called your hearers to escape. And fourthly, you'll give up. You'll give up as soon as that which you got into church planning disappears. You get up, you go into church planning because you like preaching. What happens when preaching is just the hard slog, which all the preachers in this room know it is? If you got into preaching, if you got into church planning for preaching, you will give up because preaching sucks. At least the preparation sucks. If you got into church planning because you're like hoping for some massive movement, you think you can gather a mob, what happens when you start with 10 people, you'll give up. What if you find yourself and you're not so gifted as gifted as you thought you were? You will give up. Dejected, you'll walk away. But if love got you into church planting, what will happen is you'll be patient. You know, I, remember, I remember in the early days, it was kind of the first Sunday in 2012. We had our, one of our first visitors, Rebecca Guillaume, the most lovely person you'll ever meet in our church. And she's in there. And it seemed as though I, I literally preached to five people that day. Five people in a room. I'm like, what am I preaching for? Right? There were more people in kids' church next door than were in adult church in my room. And I felt, this is so pathetic. What the heck am I doing? And you know what? If I got into church planting because I thought it was cool... I'd be out of there that following Sunday. There's no way I was going to persevere with that. But you know what? I got into it because I love people. I like five people. They need to hear the gospel this week. There are a thousand things trying to get them to drop Jesus Christ this week. And I'm there for them. That doesn't have to be a bit. See how love transforms your church plant? Yeah. What happens when you know you thought... You, know, you get into church planning because you thought, wow, people will just love you. What happens when you get into conflict with people? You'll run away. That's what will happen. And in conflict, when it happens, you'll see them as the enemy. 
rather than a sheep, a sheep, an innocent, vulnerable sheep for whom Christ died and for whom even though they disagree with you in this moment, Satan is, is, is assaulting them and you're there to try and bring them out of that. If you haven't gone into church planning for the sake of love, you will see that moment as a moment of conflict to get what you want rather than an engagement with a sinner, a vulnerable sheep for whom Christ died, to whom you'd have served in this moment. And thirdly, if you get into church planning because you love people, it'll mean you'll embrace awkwardness. There are a thousand moments which, you know what, if church planning was all about me, there is no way I'd, I'd do what I was doing. There are so many moments where just life is awkward as a pastor, isn't it? Where you're just like, I don't want to say hi to this person. Like, I've forgotten their name. And you're just like, I've just got to do it for their sakes. You know, you know if you got into church playing for anything other than love, you'll walk away from it. You know, once uh, there's a famous story which Tim Keller repeats over and over. About, and it's a story from Charles Spurgeon. I've never found it in, uh, in Spurgeon's work. And apparently, nor is Tim Keller. But... Uh, <laughs> He keeps footnoting, I can't find this in in Spurgeon's works. But anyway, it goes like this, and you've probably heard it. You know, once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who had an enormous carrot in his garden. And the man loved his sovereign, his king, so much so that his garden produced this enormous carrot. And he brought it to the king as a gift for the king. And the king, so enamored with the love of this man in his kingdom, said... Because you've shown me such favor and honor, I now present to you this, this marvelous horse. And the, the, the gardener walked away with this incredible... Uh, uh, sorry, I've, I've mixed up the metaphor. This is terrible. He didn't get a horse. He, he got his, his fields were enlarged. And at that moment, there was a noble in the king's service who watched this and thought, wow, if I bring not a carrot to the king, but a mighty horse... Uh, to the king, what will the king give me? If a carrot gets this man many, many fields, what will a horse get? And so the following day, this noble man brings before the king a horse, gives it to the king and says to the king, I, I so love you, king, that I've brought you this, this incredible steed. And the king receives it and dismisses the giver. And the man walks away confused. And the king calls him back and he says, you know, why are you confused? And, uh, and, he t- and this is what he says to him. He says, the gardener's gift was a gift indeed out of love. But you, you have given this horse to yourself, not to me. He gave me the carrot, but you have given yourself the horse. The Ephesian church, they're bringing many gifts to Jesus. But there's no true love, no true devotion. They're not doing it because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're giving themselves a gift. I don't know what it is, whether they want to be known as the church planting church, but they've run out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a terrible thing. Do you love Jesus? Or is church planting a gift that you are wanting to give yourself? Does your church love Jesus? Are you driven by love or are you actually driven by ambition? Do you persevere with love or do you persevere 
with grouchiness? Do you defend the truth in love or do you defend the truth with contempt that people could be so stupid for believing lies? Do you preach for love's sake or do you preach for the feeling you get of being listened to? Do you love Jesus? When was the last time you told him you loved him? You know, there's an 18th century heresy called Sandemanianism. And, uh, and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote about it in his little book on Puritanism. It was, uh, it was effectively kind of argued against by the Calvinistic Baptist minister, Andrew Fuller. But much of Fuller's writings were very dependent on Jonathan Edwards. And just over the last holidays, I picked up this book, Charity and Its Fruits. And Edwards in this book, he, he just he exposits 1 Corinthians 13. That marvelous, uh, that marvelous uh, chapter on love. And I want you to read uh, what he says about love. Sandemanianism, it was a heresy which said that saving faith is merely intellectual assent to a fact or proposition. That within it, there's no love, there's no commitment. It was mere belief in a bunch of facts. And Andrew Fuller, Jonathan Edwards, they all kind of say, that's not what saving faith is. And let me read to you what Jonathan Edwards writes. He says this, True love is an ingredient in true and living faith and is what is most essential and distinguishing in it. A truly practical or saving faith is light and heat together, or rather light and love, while that which is only a speculative faith is only light without heat. And in that, wants spiritual heat or divine love, is in vain and good for nothing. A speculative faith consists only in the assent of the understanding. But in a saving faith, there is also the consent of the heart. And that faith, which is only of the former kind, is no better than the faith of devils. For they have faith so far as it can exist without love, believing while they tremble. That's true, isn't it? And how terrible a situation you could find yourself in if you or your church believed all the right things and yet had no love. Your faith is as good as the belief of devils. Do not be content that your people know stuff about God. Don't be content until they love the Lord Jesus Christ, until they live for the glory and honor of your heavenly Father. Do you preach as you preach? Do you preach that men and women would just merely know their Bible? Or do you preach that they would know their Bible and so have a heart enlarged with love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, thirdly and finally, we come to Jesus' command. And here's my question. How do you cultivate deep love in your own heart? And how do you cultivate the hearts of your people? How do you cultivate deep love in the hearts of your people? Jesus tells us right at the end, and he tells us by commanding us to do something. And here I, I think he's just remarkable. He doesn't just tell us what will save us from lovelessness. He's like, you guys need to be commanded because without this command, you're not going to do it. That's how fickle we are. And so he's begun by commending their works. He corrects their lack of love and finally he commands them and this is the remedy to their lovelessness. Have a look down at verse 5. 
He says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. If you like alliteration, and this is a room full of preachers, so I assume you do, but here we see remember, repent, return. Don't we? Remember, consider how far you have fallen. That's the first thing the Lord Jesus Christ says in order to cultivate and awaken deep love. You are to remember. You remember Charles Spurgeon, he says in his sermon on this passage, and I'm just going to read it because he says it better than I do. This is what he says. He says, remember then what your first love was and compare your present condition with it. At first, nothing diverted you from your Lord. He was your life, your love, your joy. But now you look for recreation somewhere else and other charms and other beauties win your heart. Are you not ashamed of this? Once you were never wearied with hearing of him and serving him, never were you out overdone with Christ and his gospel. Many sermons, many prayer meetings, many Bible readings, many John Piper podcasts, and yet none too many. But now sermons are long, services are dull, and you must have your jaded appetite excited with seasons of House of Cards. How is this? Once you were never displeased with Jesus, whatever he did with you, if you had been sick or poor or dying, you would have still loved and blessed his name for all things. He remembers this fondness and regrets its departure. Has your love grown cold in the winter of trial and difficulty? Let us remember the heights of devotion from which we have fallen. Remember all that Christ has done to lift you from your misery, your sin, the judgment you were facing. He came to you when you were his enemy. Daily, you need to remind yourself of those things, don't you? In order that there would be love in your heart. I remember... At the beginning of this year, Liz and I were talking about, you know, how do we keep loving when we don't seem to be being loved in return? How do we take the risk of forgetting ourselves and loving others and being concerned about them and just forgetting about ourselves? How do you bear in mind someone else and think about their needs and forget your own? And at that moment, I stumbled across this beautiful, uh, this beautiful sentence in something uh, Kierkegaard wrote. And this is what he says. He says, you know, is that a safe risk to take, forgetting yourself in order to love others? He says, it is. And this is what he says. He says, while the one who loves forgets himself and thinks of the other person, God is thinking of the one who loves. He says, the self-lover is busy. He shouts and makes a big noise and stands on his rights in order to make sure he is not forgotten. And yet he is forgotten. But the one who loves, who forgets himself, is remembered by love. There is one thinking of him. The security of God's love makes the risk of you loving people in your church plants a secure investment. Even if no one else is thinking about you and your church plant, there is one who is thinking of you. And that gives you the courage to go on loving even when you're getting nothing back. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. 
Remember how much he has loved you. Remember that initial joy you experienced knowing that, you know what, if it was just you in the world, he would have died for you. Remember that. Secondly, he says, repent. Repent of the serious wrong you have done your Lord for growing cold. Turn to him and ask him to renew your first love. Ask him to have mercy on you. Ask him to shine his face upon you. Remember, repent, and finally, he says, return. Do you see that, verse 5? Do the things you did at first. There is a lot of debate about what those things are. Some people say, well, you know, uh, here is a the very orthodox church. They're defending the truth, but they've stopped evangelizing. They've become insular. They've put up walls. They're standing for the truth, but they have, they've stopped. I don't think that's the case. I think what is the first things that they did? Acts chapter 19 tells us what the first thing that they did was. So come back to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 18, verse 17. Uh, after, you know, that amazing experience of the sons of Sceva who, you know, cast out demons in the name of Jesus without knowing him and the demon, the, the demon-possessed the demon man jumps on him and the, the, the sons of Sceva and, and, and they... They get such a beating that they walk out naked. Great story. But um, verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their skulls together and burned them publicly. That's the first things they did. What did they do? They, did, they made a very public, heartfelt confession of sin and they clung to the Lord Jesus Christ and they burned up everything. They burned up anything that would compete for their trust and love in their lives. That's what you're to do, isn't it? You're to remember the heights from which you're fallen you're to repent of the serious thing you have done, your Lord, and you're to return to what you did at first. You're to stop chasing, tr- putting your trust in other things and find your joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you cultivate deep love in your own heart and that of your own people? You remember, you repent and you return. And that's what we see, isn't it? And I'll finish on this. That's what we see in that remarkable little account of Jesus' interaction with the woman who is a notorious sinner and Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee. Do you remember that? The Pharisee, he has Jesus over for dinner and as they're reclining at table, Jesus sitting down on the floor and this notorious sinner comes up, stands behind and she sees this man who has set her free from her sins and she can't help. She just bursts into tears and her, the tears, they fall on his feet Ashamed, she hops down and she wipes his feet with her hair. She anoints his feet with this very expensive alabaster jar of perfume. And when the Pharisee, Simon, who saw what had happened, saw this, he says, you know, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him 
and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, well, tell me. And Jesus says to him, two people owed a certain money lender. One owed him $500,000, the other $50,000. Neither of them had the money to pay them back. And so he forgave both debts. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replies, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt. You've judged correctly, the Lord Jesus Christ replies. And then he turns to the woman, but speaks to Simon and says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, and yet she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with my hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't pour oil on my head, and yet she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell her her sins, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. If you love little, either you're not forgiven or you've forgotten how much you have been forgiven. How do you cultivate deep love in your own heart and in the hearts of your own people? You preach Christ crucified. You remind them regularly of the heights from which they have fallen and the immense love and mercy shown to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott says, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough to it for it sparks to fall on us. That's the key to your life. That's the key to your love. And that's the key to your people's love. Do you find them cold and heartless? Show them Christ. Show them his love. Show them the immensity of what it cost him to forgive them. You must never move on from Christ, his cross. In the early years, I set out preaching the glory of Christ. And one of the passages which really convicted me was 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It reads this, And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And I read that as a young man. I thought, that's what I want, isn't it? Men and women transformed into the image of God. And what will do it? It comes as they contemplate the Lord's glory. And so for the first couple of years of the church plan, I just set out, preach the glory of God in the face of Christ. And hearts will swell with love. Friends, there is a lot of work to be done. If you plan a church, you will have to persevere. You will have to make a stand for the truth. There will error you'll have to defend against. And there'll be many hardships. But don't grow loveless and cold. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, what it cost him to save you. And you will plant a church with much love and your people's hearts will swell with love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we... We come uh, here now from a variety of different backgrounds and 
Lord Jesus Christ, you have confronted us with uh, the lovelessness in our hearts and we own that and we recognize that to be true in our own lives and we are really sorry for it. We realize how ugly that is in our own lives. Father, we remember the heights from which we've fallen, those early days in which we just, we just loved you and we'd do anything from you. We'd rock up to church early, stay back late. There was nothing too big for us to do. And yet over time, it's become difficult and we've grown cold. And we ask that you give us a fresh appreciation for what the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us. Father, help us to remember that in loving and forgetting ourselves that there is one remembering us and that we will not be forgotten. Father, we pray that our church plants wouldn't just be filled with work and truth and perseverance, but they would be characterized firstly by love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.